This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Right now, Canadian media, and I mean, this is coast to coast, and this is not just Canadian media, this is media around the world, are grappling with a really, really difficult ethical question as it comes to their profession. A question that honestly is as confusing as to what to do, what's the right thing to do, as there is. It's called unpublishing. Not publishing. They do publishing. They always published. It's unpublishing. If a true story, if a story that is based in fact, due to a change in what's happened, becomes untrue, should it be removed from the internet? For example, John Doe is charged with a crime. That's true. John Doe goes on trial for that crime. That's true. John Doe gets acquitted of that charge. So he is no longer seen as a possible criminal. Should then all references to that charge, to his trial, to the part of his life that would say he went through that be taken down so that no one can find that and that is expunged from history? The easy answer would be sure. That's the right thing. But it also belies then the fact that what happened actually happened. There was a trial. There was a charge. How do we deal with this? Well, going to bring in Jim Poling, the managing editor of the Hamilton Spectator. Uh, although this one is, um, man, this is a this is a tough one, Jim. And, and I got to believe that this, for people who are making decisions like you in editorial positions around the world, this is as tough a quandary as there probably is in the business right now. It is, Scott. Uh, I'm hap- happy to discuss this. It's a, it's a fascinating issue. It's, it's an emerging issue. When uh, you know, I've been in the business more than 30 years, and, and for the largest part of that, We've been dealing with getting information in the paper, getting it into our database, populating our websites, giving people access to information. So for a long time, we've been fighting, and people have been, uh, institutions have been fighting with us on freedom of information and, and how to get it. Now, uh, I don't, uh, it's not a trend, but we're hearing people say, uh, how do we unpublish or I have a right to be forgotten? And I, I don't know that, that, that it's a right, but certainly people are saying we have a right to privacy, remove that story. And typically, we do not remove stories. Is that the spec's official position right now? And, and frankly, the position of most papers that we know of, that it's not to remove it? In Canada, certainly. It, now, there, there's different uh, schools of thought, and frankly, there's, there's different laws. Certainly in Europe, uh, maybe, I want to say in 23 years ago, 2014, the European Union um, um, took a different stance and said, yes, in fact, people have a right to be forgotten, and there's a a criteria around it. Certainly in Canada, uh, we don't have those kind of rulings, but in the example that that you gave dealing with a criminal matter, uh, we say you know, we there was there was a charge. It was a matter of public record. It existed. It, it, it existed. We didn't create that information. It, it's a matter of public record. We are reflecting that in the public interest. We covered the trial. We covered the evidence details that are in there. Sometimes people don't like the details have come out, but that's evidence, and uh, you know that's it's in the public interest to report what's said in, in open court. We did that fairly and responsibly. And an outcome, uh, you know, the, the court makes a decision and someone says, there, I'm found not guilty. You have to remove all that information. 
And we're saying, no, that is a matter of public record. It's important that the public know what was said, how the case was decided, who testified, and what that testimony was. The interesting part about, well, there's a lot of interesting parts about this, but one of them is if that was to happen, and I'm looking at both sides of this, but if it was to happen that the example that we're using became commonplace, if you actually were new to the court system, if you were trying to do some research, you might come to the conclusion that no one was ever acquitted because you could never find any records of anyone ever being acquitted from a court case. The only things that would still be online were the guilty verdicts. Well, exactly. And and part of the open courts principle is that there's fair and transparent access to those decisions, how they are made, who is there, what was said. Uh, It's not whether somebody's guilty or not guilty, uh, the courts decide to publish or or air that information. Now, when we're talking about, um, you know, the the right to unpublish or or the right to to be forgotten, there's many other facets uh, that, that this um, affects and many other forms of media. The decisions I make are purely for the newspaper and its website. Social media has has a whole other uh, there's a whole other world out there. I know Google and Facebook particularly face these requests all the time. Have has, have you ever, as managing editor of the Spectator here in Hamilton, have you ever had anyone request this? Oh. Yes, I have. I, I, I was going to say weekly, but maybe it's not that frequently, but often. Often. It is, uh, and, and that's another point you raise that really challenges us. And I, we all, I'm, you're only going to have about 15 seconds to answer this one. We've got to go to a break. But with social media, it changes the dynamic as well. Because even if the paper or CHML or CHCH or whatever was to take it down, that information still exists. Well, uh, I challenge anybody to try and contact Google to say, please, please take this URL out. I, I, I have tried. I've been through the process. Um, I have talked to Google, but it's taken. it's been onerous. It, it's not easy, and it, it's faceless. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Hamilton Spectator Managing Editor Jim Poling about the concept of unpublishing, which is something that many people have not really heard of, but you can understand why they, why some people might want something taken down off the interwebs, because it may not be looking good for them. It may tell a story that turned out not to be ultimately well, not true, but not real, I guess is the better way to do this. And Jim, we were just saying before the break, even if a newspaper, a radio station, a TV station were to take the stories off their website of something that happened in a charge or in court or something else, social media, the rest of the internet, it's if it's happened, there is going to be a record. So really, all you're doing is saying, we're not going to give you our official record, but that information is still out there, right? Well, it's, certainly it lives in, in a variety of forms. It, it lives in, in uh, whatever social media site, you know, Google or Facebook or, you know, YouTube. Uh, those URLs are out there. It lives in, in uh, the, the caches, the, um, you know, the, the memory of, of computers. Um, what our preference here, what we do is um, if we have new information about uh, a, a charge, a conviction, an incident, we will append a note to the record 
So, you know, if it's something that, that someone has asked and has made a case for or has said, wait a minute, you know, you had all these trial stories and uh, I was found not guilty, you didn't report that, we will re-report that or we'll put a note on the story so that when people do search that story, they'll see that, that the record is, is reflected. Now, there's many type of cases here. We've had, I think one of the examples, we had somebody, um, a, a landlord in Hamilton, who w- was um, convicted of several fire code violations. 10 or 12 years later, you know, fast forward, they're living in another city, they own other apartments, and they've said, hey, wait a minute, a lot of time has passed here, um, but I still, I Google my name and... Uh, this record comes up. I'm a landlord now, and people say to me they don't want to rent with me because of, of these convictions from a long time ago, and I've changed my ways. So can you take it off? And what do you say? And I say, no. I, I, I'm sorry. That reflected a moment in time that was true. That is part of your past. That is part of your criminal history. Now, the flip side, though, Jim, and, and I think the one where a lot of people would look at this and feel very sympathetic. Let's use another example. Let's say a guy was charged with sexually assaulting, what's the worst case scenario? Sexually assaulting a child. Right. And the spectator or someone else was to report this, and then in court it turned out that he was found not guilty. I think most people could look at that and say, yeah, that guy probably would want to have that information taken down because it turned out that it wasn't legally anyway, it wasn't true, and he's never going to be able to shake that. We, we have faced that issue, and uh, other papers have. Uh, and what, what I've said is, uh, so when those stories come along, we have an obligation. If we're going to print that story of the person being charged, we have an obligation to follow that story through and to print the outcome of it, whether the person is guilty or found not guilty. And what I've always said to them uh, people don't like, particularly the people that are found not guilty, they don't like the fact that the story was reported, and they say, I'm not guilty, take it down. And I say, well, the record is there. It's transparent that says you were found not guilty. That's the best we can do. We're, we're, we're not going to expunge that record. Well, and again, uh, the difficult part about this is that example is one I think that so many people could, as I say, sympathize with. They could understand, they could imagine themselves, hopefully not, but they could imagine themselves wrongly charged and suddenly they end up on the front page of the paper or on the internet, wherever. And they say, how do I ever get rid of that? So we say, yeah, that should be taken down. But I think part of the problem and part of the difficulty is if you were to use acquittal as a measure to remove all information of someone who was not found guilty, if we're going to be consistent, if the media is going to be consistent, that would mean all information of the O.J. Simpson trial would have to be removed from the Internet because he was found not guilty in a criminal court. Now, sure. I know those are maybe two ends of the spectrum, but it's a there's a continuum. They are both someone who was very highly publicized and found to be not guilty. So by law, they didn't commit that crime. O.J. Simpson would have every amount of right as the person who was charged with sexually assaulting a child to ask for that to be taken down. And how do you do that? Sure. And, and that, that's an extreme example. Of course. Uh, but, but certainly I understand your point. The, you know, what we've said, the courts are open. You know, a fundamental tenet of our uh, democracy, our constitution, is that we have open courts. And 
we're in the business of providing information, not hiding information. So our, our courts are open. We are reporting what is said in the courts. Now, the courts are very good about having laws that, that uh, um, uh, publication bans that keep information closed or, um, you know, secret when if they find that it has a harmful effect on, say, a jury or will prejudice a jury or shouldn't come out un- until a certain time. Um, there's, there's laws that protect, that protect the names of children or the names of uh, sexual assault uh, victims. Um, so we don't publish those details. But in, in open court, as the example we're talking about, we, we do. And, you know, we, we say repeatedly to people, we're here in the public interest to reflect what's said in public and to give a fair and accurate uh, account of that. It is, uh, as I said right off the top when I brought you in here, Jim, it is one of the tricky, one of the ethical conundrums that the media has right now. And I don't think it's going to go away. In fact, with Internet as it is now, social media, it's only going to get bigger. Um, We're going to be talking about this again, I have no doubt. Uh, I really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome, Scott. Thank you very much. Uh, Jim Poling, Managing Editor of The Spectator. Go If you want more about this, go look up Unpublish. There's lots and lots and lots of stories about this and what they're doing in Europe, what they're doing here. Fascinating stuff. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. You caught, if you were here last night, right at the end of this hour, we were telling you a little bit about what was happening with the OMB ruling on ward boundaries now, some of you, those words will cause you to immediately slip into sleep. I understand word boundaries by its definition is not necessarily the most exciting topic in the world, but you want to know something? The ruling that came down is a fascinating change and has fascinating implications for the city and for future elections here. And joining me to talk about it, a guy who uh, last night when we were chatting, well, not with him, but when we were talking about this, last night he had a ward. Today, I'm not sure he does. <laughs> Councillor Robert Pasuda from Ward 14, thanks for joining us. Good evening, Scott. Uh, by the way, before we get into that, uh, everybody knows you've been going through some health issues. I'm glad you're well enough to actually join us again and back at it. So uh, good for you for, for getting better enough to get back on the job and do your thing. Thank you, Scott. How long after this... Uh, report came out last night after the first indications of how long till your phone started ringing off the hook because i imagine it did well uh scott you were about the first one that contacted me and then uh, samantha craig from cbc contacted me uh, as i said last night we were friends came from nova scotia so we we're having dinner in toronto near the airport and uh, i just shut everything off until i got home and uh was listening to messages and texts and emails and um People aren't happy. Some people don't understand what has happened. So uh, it's um, for some people, from their messages, it's devastating to, to be to lose their rule, uh, the rural significance. It's gone. The small town feel. Is was that the overwhelming sense uh, sense from the messages? Were most people upset by it that you heard from? Yes, they were. They're upset. Uh, they were. Uh, they were happy the way things are. And, and, and Scott, it's not it's not my ward; it's the people's ward. I mean, if anybody could represent it, they get elected and do it. And and I never was one to say it's my ward; it's the people's ward. And I and I work for those people, and I work for the city as a whole too. 
the the perception that I got today, and and maybe these are the the feelings that you got in the messages that you received, but the feeling I got today is that there is a sense that with this ward now gone, and it was almost exclusively rural, that rural voters, rural citizens will not. The feeling is they won't have a voice at the council table. Do you share that? Do you do you think that's an accurate reflection of of what is going to happen? Well, Scott, so the war gets split between Ancaster and, and, and Dundas. So somebody will be there. Somebody's going to represent the ward. But, and I'm just speaking outly here, um, there is a difference between the urban, the suburban, and the rural. And uh, when you live the, the rural life and you understand it, and particularly the agricultural lands and all the lands in between, um, you know how to work with people. You know how to to deal with the issues. And the issues are so different in the rural area. We don't. They don't. Uh, for me, I probably maybe I spoiled the people in the ward. And my assistant Lynn, uh, we worked with them. We helped them. Uh, I would go look at the culverts into the bridges. I'd drive my truck out to the field to talk to them. Um, it was it was something I, I wanted to do. And uh, as I told many people. I never left the farm. I'm still on the farm, and we're farming. But I never left the farm because I needed income. We were okay doing well on the farm. I went to the city to work there with uh, income loss. But uh, I just I wanted to help the city and the rural make a difference. You did mention that the, they will still have representation. There's going to be a councillor. They're not without a ward entirely. It's been split up, but they're going to have someone who represents them. Why, where is the fear? Why would there be a fear that that councillor would not be able to represent them as fully as you might have? Or or even if it's not you, although you've done your job, but as someone who is specifically a rural councillor. Why, why could the mix not work as well? Well, a councillor is a councillor. It all depends who, who gets put in there. The, uh, the, there's issues that go along with it, though. And the first thing that came out was the area rating and the transit. Now that part of the wards with Dundas, they have transit. The other parts with Ancaster, they have some transit. And they feel they're going to be inflicted with the cost of transit out in the rural area. And they're already paying their fair share as far as driving cars and gas and everything else. So uh, that was the first thing that came up. Uh, the next thing that came up, potential to, to lose the volunteer fire system. That came forward, too. Uh, all my I have... Four stations in my ward, all volunteer, and uh, that's that's another fact that came up. Maybe we'll have full time. And that's going to add to the tax bill. So there's and, and it goes on. There, there's there's issues. So um, I I don't know. Um, I was last night. I was somewhat surprised, although I did have discussions with people, including my my office, uh, that this could happen. I think uh, I went to bed about 2 o'clock. I was back up at 3 o'clock. Uh, finally, it kicked in then what's, what's happened. And uh, I'm just concerned for the, for the residents, for, for my residents out there uh, who I represent at City Hall. And it's just a big concern. But you know what? One day there and next day gone. Are you, now, we, we have more to talk about, but are you thinking of running again? Are you planning to run again? Well, I had the accident, uh, three accidents in two days, and then we figured out what was wrong. Um, I'm getting better. I have been telling people it's my intention to run. 
um, again in Ward 14. I'd like one more shot at it. I'm getting old, older. <laughs> and uh, when you're pushing 65 and you put another four years in, you'd be there, you're 69. And, you know, I've got family and grandkids and, and, and a big farm operation. I like to do that. But I, I, my heart was in it for another shot. Uh, and it still is. I, we just have to, I have to grasp it more and see what happens and see what other uh, counselors are saying and, and what more of my residents are saying. We're here tonight in Greensville at the Optimist Christmas party, and uh, I'm sure I'll be getting an earful here tonight. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Ward 14, Councillor Robert Pasuda, whose ward kind of Poof! Vanished last night. Uh, I, I'm not making light of it, but it was. Uh, it must be strange to wake up and find out that your ward doesn't really. I mean, it exists for now, but pretty soon it's going to be gone. That's true, Scott. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll do my job and my office to do our job until the next election, until the new council sworn in. Um, and, and depends on where I go with this, but it's uh, it's so true. It's there one minute and it's gone. It's. Uh, it's it's hard to hard to believe it, but it's it is what it is, and we have to accept that. I don't know where where, where council may be going with this. If anything, uh, I'm not sure. I think we are going to have something on Monday. Um, we got LRT committee, and then we're going to have something with the the ward boundaries. And I am deputy mayor for the month too, so it'll be a long meeting. Clearly, I mean, people can hear it in your voice uh, how you feel about this. But I, I have to ask the other side of it as well, because as I, if I'm correct, you were the small, biggest, I think, geographic ward, but smallest population base, and you were your, your population number. I think was about a quarter of what the biggest ward was, and so a lot of people would say, you know what, it's not fair that sixty thousand people only have the same voice as roughly fifteen thousand people. D- did you agree with that? No, I didn't agree with that because there's a difference. And, and the fact is that there's a rural way of life, and, and that's how they live it. And then there's the urban and the, and the suburban. And I've supported my colleagues on most things within the city, within the city uh, projects. I supported them and supported them and supported them. So I, I, worked, with, I worked with them, and uh, it, it was it was. It was satisfying to work with them and move forward. And the mayor's office I worked with well, too. The Okay, so the were you in favor of whether it um, affected your ward or not? Were you in favor of any kind of ward boundary review? Did you want to see things balance out a little more and just hope that your ward would not be affected much? Or were you happy right, as it was with the status quo? So during the talks and back and forth, and Councillor Partridge said, um, offered up, she has a bit of the ward, of her ward west of number six in Millgrove in that part. That was offered up to be included in my ward. It brought the population up somewhat. And then, of course, there's the other option to make ward 14 was going to be bigger. That was out there to take, go into ward 15 and take from what we call the 7th concession east right up to where I live, up to the uh, uh, county line with Wellington County. So there was that. I mean, one way or another, it is what it is, but I, I think it would have been, and I did talk with the consultants about getting a portion of Councillor Partridge's ward to add into it, and uh, I remember they were shaking their head, oh, that's pretty good, that's pretty good, because we had the discussion, but um, to do the job right, it's a big ward if you're going to travel it and, and visit the people, which they expect, and it's 36.5%, it was, it still is, 
of the whole city landmass is, is Ward 14. Wow. So, uh, you must have had some conversations today with other councillors. What have they been saying? Actually, believe it or not, Scott, nobody called me other than Councillor Parkridge called and left a message, and uh, I haven't got back to her, but there was there was no uh, no calls and no emails from the councillors. I did hear Ron Bell Kelly, uh, Councillor Skelly was on there, and Councillor Johnson, and uh, they spoke very well of uh, losing, losing a, a totally rural ward. Even though you clearly don't want this, had you, and even though you were, I think, caught a little bit off guard, it sounds like, last night, had you expected that something was going to happen to your ward? Oh, yes. I knew something was going to happen, but not this drastic. And once again, Scott, it's Ward 14. It's the people's ward, and I represent it. And I, I, I don't take possession of it. I, I just, just want to be there to help out. And it is, uh, it is. You know, it, you're never, you're not there for a lifetime. You're there to, to help serve for time, maybe change things to make things better for the people, for the city, and uh, then you move on. So maybe this is time to move on. And but I need to get my feet back on the ground, uh, watch what's going to happen, and. Uh, potentially come back and, and go for it. Uh, I, I still want four more years, and I, and, and I love the job. One last thing, and I'm almost loath to raise this because I'm, um, I don't think that too many people necessarily love the topic, but I'm going to raise it anyway because I, I can't help but think that maybe this is going to spawn or inspire some new anti-amalgamation discussions. Do you expect that that might happen now, that the people who are out there in the rural areas are going to say, look, what are we doing here? I believe it's coming. It's, it's going to be another bit of a push. I mean, it's past the point. We've already been amalgamated, and now we've got the, the ward split. Um, they, they were strong out there in, in Ward 14 and 15 about the amalgamation, and, and I believe it's going to come back, but I don't know how much uh, gumption it's going to have to move forward and, and uh I, I don't know. I, I just it's frustrating. But will will this alone do it, or if something changes with the area rating or with HSR fees or something else, will that be the thing that really ignites it? Oh, for sure, uh, that'll be coming down the road. But I think they're going to be aware of it by time. Probably by time we get to the next election, they'll be quite aware of what's going to ha- potential, what could happen. I'm, I'm not saying that they're going to be you know paying for transit, paying for this, and paying for that but the potential's there, and that's the fear that people have already as of uh, today. Ward 14 for now. Councillor Robert Pasuda, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate the time. It's a, um, again, you know what? It's one of those topics that is sometimes difficult because unless you're affected by it, you go, hmm, I'm not really sure. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. The ward boundary changes, which is going to severely affect some people, which is going to not really affect other people. And for some of you, you go, what's the big deal? Well, let me tell you what they should have done. I really believe that an opportunity was missed here. And before I give you the answer, let's give some background to why things are changing. They want to make it so that there is better representation. Some wards have a lot of people, very dense population. Some wards in this city have very sparse population, but huge geography. We just had Robert Pasuda, counselor for Ward 14. Huge geography. I think he said 30, almost a third of the geographic size of the city of Hamilton, yet only 16,000 people. 
the smallest populated ward. So what they're trying to do, what this is all about, is to make it a little closer so that each councillor represents closer to the same number of people so that there's better or ostensibly better representation for each person. Again, the argument being, if I live in a ward with 60,000 people and I have only one councillor, why should I get the, why should the people who live in a ward with 15 or 16,000 people have the same? Seems like it's four to one. Therefore, we should maybe have four. Well, it doesn't work out quite like that. But here's the other problem, the other challenge that wasn't really addressed in this that we have in the city. Everybody knows we are two cities in one, really, maybe three. But two cities in one. And just follow the votes on any contentious urban versus rural, urban versus suburban vote. Follow the voting lines and you'll see we are two cities. We are the downtown, the lower city, the old city of Hamilton, and we are the mountain and the suburbs. Again, for the most part, follow the votes on LRT. Follow the votes on stadium. Follow the votes on other things. You will see that in many cases, the voting lines largely follow the same thing. In many cases, the downtown old city councillors vote together, not as a lump necessarily as some sort of survivor-like alliance, just that's their interest. That's what they're voting for, and the suburbs have different interests. So how do you fix that? See, that to me was a bigger deal, or was at least as big a deal as how do you get a little more balance in the numbers? And what they should have done, what should have happened, and this was never going to happen because it was massive if you were going to do it, but the way that you make this city work better, honestly, the way this would have made this city work better is you completely redraw the ward boundaries, completely, so that every councillor has a chunk of the old city and a chunk of the suburbs or the mountain or the rural area to deal with. You make it so that every councillor has to look after issues in the lower city and in the suburbs and in the rural areas. So no longer do we have a councillor or number of councillors who are only interested in downtown issues. And therefore, they're not really fighting for the broader city of Hamilton Nor do you have people who are just in the suburbs who don't really fight for the downtown or the people in the urban areas. And you end up with this head-to-head budding of issues because, look, if I'm on the mountain, why do I want an LRT? And if I'm downtown, why should we build a stadium or an arena or anything up on the mountain? It's all, right now we have fiefdoms. We have battles for your individual ward and because of the way our city is positioned those wards are not comparable what we needed to do what we should have had happen here is that every single ward should have constituted a bit of the downtown or a bit of the old city and a bit of the suburbs so that everybody was looking big picture for this entire city of Hamilton that is how this thing would have been fixed that is how we would have gotten more results I think and better stuff at City Hall That's how you end up with councillors having to look at the big picture of the entire city. I mean, the other option, which could have worked just as well, which again was never going to happen, is to divide the city up into only five wards, let's say, and then you have 10 councillors at large. But we have way too much in this city, fiefdoms, kingdoms, 
areas that you're only, because that's where your voters are. If I'm in ward whatever, and I want to get reelected, I have to fight for the votes in my ward. I don't care what happens in all the other wards. You might say you do, but really, if you want to be reelected, you want to fight for what's going to get you votes in your ward. We need to step away from that. We need to have a bigger picture view, a 30,000 foot view of this city from our council. It's not their fault that they're voting on issues that relate only or primarily for their constituents. That's the way the thing is set up. They're working within that system. We need to take that system away and make a different system that allows them and requires them to have a far broader and more expansive view of the city so that when we have votes on things, it's not just for a small segment of the population or even a slightly bigger segment of the population, but a targeted segment. We need to have councillors who vote on the big issues of the city, who see the entirety of the city. And unfortunately, with the boundary reviews that are proposed here, that are going to be discussed, the city may or may not decide to appeal this, but it sounds like they probably won't. That is not going to happen. And what we're going to have for the next foreseeable future is more of exactly what we've had, just slightly tweaked. Missed opportunity. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. About four months ago, my next guest posted a very sad, very poignant, but very sad, but also at the time, a little cryptic message on his Facebook page. The the very sad part was that his daughter had passed away. It was It was a terrible message to see, especially for someone who, again, is very well known in this community. It is... Every parent's worst nightmare, of course. Thankfully, very few of us ever have to go through this. Thankfully, although he did. Uh, Months later, however, David Sweet, MP for Flamborough Glanbrook, is talking about what happened, and he's talking about it for a reason, and I welcome him right now. Uh, Mr. Sweet, thanks for doing this tonight. Hi, Scott. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, before we get into this, tell me about your daughter, because that's really what this story is about. Get, take a minute or two and, and tell me about her. Lara was a beautiful, outgoing girl who uh, wore her personality on her shirt sleeves. Um, she could be an extraordinary leader with great empathy, and many, many hundreds of people in, in Hamilton uh, know her for that. Uh, but because she wrestled with mental health all of her life, uh, 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 none of it uh, of her own doing uh, or derived from uh, anything that she did. Um, she uh, had challenges. And the, and the amazing thing about Lara, obviously, knowing she was, when she was very young, it wasn't the case. But as she got older, she, was, she became very aware uh, of the mental health challenges that she had and, and, and did uh, an extraordinary job at trying to self-manage those, uh, if I may say, those mental health demons that she had to wrestle with. When when did you now she was was she adopted I understand she she was an adopted daughter we we adopted Lara when she was just an infant yes and did you know at the time that you adopted that was probably very early you would not have known probably right off the bat that she was having these challenges but when did it become apparent how far along did it become apparent that she was dealing with some stuff well we we had uh, uh, we did have um, uh, a knowledge so we went into it really with our eyes wide open we. Uh, we knew that um, she came from a person with a troubled past. It was uh, her biological father was my brother, 
who had mental health issues uh, his whole life as well. He passed away uh, two years ago. And um, and he was actually uh, in jail at the time that he phoned me and asked me to uh, adopt Lara, that the Roman Catholic Children's Aid Society had Lara, and that uh, she was his daughter. And so uh, we knew that that was the case, and then when we went to visit Lara, we found out that she was on uh, phenobarbital, a, a withdrawal drug that they put a children on when they suspect that they were born from uh, addicted parents. So... Um, we hoped for the best, we worked for the best, uh, but we were always ready to deal with uh, whatever Lara had to deal with. And these things, as she got older, became clearer. They manifested themselves pretty clearly as she got older. Yes, even even young. Uh, of course, they were easier to manage when she was just tiny, but you know, even at a young age, uh, um, she did what uh, her behavior was common to what uh, many uh, infants are alike with uh, that, that come from uh, addicted uh, parents where they react to things differently than others. She was terrified of water, uh, and if it hadn't been for the loving and patient uh, persistence of her mother, uh, my wife, Almut, uh, she she would never have gotten over it. In fact, it was so the Children's Aid Society, you know, they always check on you after you adopt a, a child, and I remember the the children's aid uh, worker coming in, and she was so shocked that Lara was fully immersed in a bath when she was nine months mm. old. And uh, she said, "Well, how did you do that?" And and uh, you know, Alma explained to her that, "Well, you know, it's just one step at a time. We got her toes wet, and we got her calves wet, and we, you know, just over months, she got her used to it to the point where uh, Lara was, uh, you know, uh, you couldn't get her out of the pool. I mean, she was <laughs> when she was older, she just." loved water, and that was, uh, you know, very unusual, and uh, it was something that was uh, born out of love, really. There there are so many difficult questions in this um, that I'm just going to jump in and, and, you know, and hold. When you, while you're loving her, while you love your child, do you wish that those challenges are not there? Can you, as a father at that age, when she's very young, can you separate those things and say, man, she's wonderful, but boy, I wish those things, she didn't have to deal with them. Yes, I, I, I mean you. You know you would. You, you you are always asking. You know, if, are there answers I don't know? Is there something I should be doing? Are, are we loving enough? Are we embracing enough? Are we correcting enough? Are we working with? I, you're always. You know, it's, as much as you try not to take it on personally, because I, I because I think somebody wise early in our uh, in our lives told us, you know, not to take these things personal because they do debilitate you if you're always. If you're doing that, but uh, you know you're all, you're you're always searching. Um, not so much that she never had them, but you know, that you could come up with that answer that could help her deal with it. And uh, and of course the family. I mean, he's you know uh, when Lara was acting out, uh, you know we had a large family, and uh, you know they were subject to uh, those behaviors, and uh, it was those were challenging times. As she gets older and into her teenage years, um, does it become even more prevalent? Does it even begin to consume her more? Yes, so uh, it becomes more serious, of course, just like uh, every child who's growing up. They're trying to find themselves, and, you know, for Lara, of course, uh, that that meant a lot of behaviors that weren't acceptable in school, that, uh, you know, um, so when she didn't like the way things going, she could 
she could probably set the record for how loud and how long she could yell. <laughs> and, um, and, and so, you know, those, it, it became more challenging. And, uh, like I said, you know, it's, uh, and, and the challenge of trying to find the right way to deal with it so that everybody could live in one home. And at that time, uh, we also had my dad living with us. So the house was quite full with eight people. And, um, uh, so, uh, we were doing the best that we could. We had some great help from McMaster, uh, uh, it wasn't a children's hospital then, but they had a great children's, uh, psychiatric care unit there. And we had some great help, but, uh, uh, you know, the, you, you, you work with what you have. She did respond early to uh, Ritalin, and for many years she took that drug at a prescribed dosage that, that worked, and uh, school worked with us. I, I can't say enough positive about Holy Name of Mary School that was very patient uh, helping Lara. Uh, but there came a time when she felt that simply by taking a drug she was, uh, uh, you know, she, she was less of a person of, you know, her, her term to me was, you know, I, I don't want people to think I'm crazy. And I said, well, uh, nobody needs to know you're taking it. She said, well, you know, I know. And, uh, so she, uh, once she stopped taking it, then, uh, then, it, then the behavior became very extreme. So, like, and, what does that, what does that mean? What, what happened that when she stopped? Um, you know, she could still be, cause obviously you've, you've seen the pictures and we, she could still be uh, uh, an extraordinarily positive person, and she was, and as a leader in training, et cetera, at that Circle Square Ranch, at our church, and uh, you know, in Air Cadets. But uh, when that wasn't going well, um, she would let let you know by acting out, by uh, screaming and yelling, by having tantrums in other ways, by slamming doors, by destroying property. Um, uh, you know, those, and you know, you just. Uh, those were tough things to to handle when, like I said, eight people are living in one house in close quarters. She eventually did leave home, correct? She left very early. She left at fifteen. We uh, we called the police, but there's nothing you can do. If she decided to, she decided to go, and uh, we were very concerned because we knew of the challenges that she had, and obviously we loved her as well, and uh, uh, you know, which was our main motivation. But we, you know, we also uh, knew the the high risk factors that she had of having mental health. And, uh, so she left when she was 15 and, uh, and had some tough times, uh, on her own. I, I, I am, I can only imagine how difficult that is for someone who's going through it, but you know what, David, for, for you as parents, it has to be incredibly difficult too. not just knowing what's going on, but what do you do? I mean, what goes through your mind? How do you answer when someone you meet says, Hey, David, how are the kids? That's got to yeah. be a really tough question to answer in those circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, and we tried to be, uh, how would I say, as diplomatically straight as we could be. I mean, we wanted to protect Lara's privacy as well. Um, so those people who are close to us, uh, you know, we, we simply shared with them that, uh, you know, Lara's uh, on her own and, and, uh, you know we're concerned, and we uh, we come from a faith community, so you know that we're we're praying for her. And uh, but there's not you know that all we could do is continue to reach out to her. And uh, again, my my wife, you know, just deserves so much credit because she would on a regular basis, no matter what, whether Lara spurned our our outreach or whether she was willing to take it, it was just always reaching out to see if she could have a coffee with her, see if she could buy her some groceries. Uh, um, you know, uh, 
I remember one year that uh, uh, she, I think she bought Laura four or five parkas because she, she lost them all in one winter. Um, but we were just constantly trying to find ways to reach her to see if she was ready to, to talk, ready to deal with their issues, and uh, that's what what we did for years. Even though, and you've you've made this clear that you know that this was nothing of her doing, and and by extension, it was nothing of your doing. I wonder, as a parent, do you are there times when you sit there and wonder, did we fail? Did we do something wrong here that led to this? Because that that to me would seem like a pretty natural question, even though it probably makes no sense. Yes, and uh, and you know, uh, so that was the one positive. Uh, even though it's kind of, I know, I know it's for some people listening they might understand it. But one positive from go- having gone through it myself with my brother through our through my through my my birth family, obviously, uh, and seeing him at a time when nobody knew at all. Like I mean, what we know now about mental health is so is leagues ahead of when we took Paul to this little place called Beech Grove, which was a kind of a, an experimental offshoot of the Ontario Psychiatric Hospital back in the 60s, where uh, they were just beginning to pioneer child psychiatry and psychology. And, uh, uh, you know, they just had no answers then. In fact, I, I remember it was, uh, and I, I say this now because of what you just asked me, it was devastating to my parents because after they interviewed all of us and they interviewed Paul, they kind of got us in a room and they said, well, we have a, our hypothesis is that, you know, it's all your fault. And they said that to my parents. And I, I, I think I was, I was six or seven at the time. And I remember looking over with my parents and I remember being, seeing them devastated, you know, because they had done everything to, to try and help Paul. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, my, I, you know, even at a, that young age, I know oh, my parents aren't perfect, but wow, I mean, hmm. this isn't their fault. And so I lived through that, and I watched the devastation uh, that, uh, I mean, you couldn't talk to my mom for more than 10 minutes about Paul before she got emotional and started to cry. And she bur- took the whole burden of, of his challenges and the fact that he was incarcerated for most of his life because of his mental health that, you know, when we adopted Laura, I said, you know, one thing we've got to do is understand that this is, you know, we're, we do everything we can, but we cannot, we cannot shoulder this burden or uh, it will, we won't be able to be there for Laura because it'll devastate us. So we had that, we had that, uh, that luxury of that uh, hindsight mm. going into it. So although many times you would ask yourself, are we doing the best thing? We managed to avoid, uh, you know, uh, devastating ourselves psychologically with with bearing the whole burden of it. Which I bet a lot of people who go through something like this actually don't have that, so they probably do wear that much more. But l- let's jump ahead. Um, and that's part of why we're speaking out. And For sure. Um, back in August when... Well, t- take me to August. How did you find out? What did you find out? So there Walk were two... So, there, so, so I, I think we... It's it's appropriate that everybody should know there. So there was about two years where, first Laura, she you know she she ended up in jail. You know her behavior took her to jail for a few months, and and her biological father passed away. And I think those two things uh, were such a big blow that uh, they, however them however the mind works with mental health issues, they they connected some circuits that helped her. And uh, 
she began to be an entire, uh, I shouldn't say an entire, all of the positive things that we knew of Lara began to be amplified, and, and she began to be very conscious of, of her acting out, and she began to manage it herself. Um, and to the point where she got her own room, uh, started working regularly, this is, we, we, that, that had never happened, and, um, and, and it had actually uh, been off drugs for seven months uh, before the August choice that she made so she was really um uh, you know we had some great times we had some great conversations and we really felt that you know she had uh, she'd she'd passed the tipping point and was on her way to real independence and not that she would ever ever be totally free of challenges but that's you know she had managed to know how to leverage everything positive inside her to be a uh, the kind of person that she wanted to be but you talk about the choice, and, and it, you know you can't tell this story, and I know you don't want to tell this story without talking about that because it's such a, a part of it for those people who are going through what you went through. Um, how how did you find out? Well, it was uh, it was tough, um, and I feel bad uh, for the police as well because they have such a tough job with social media. But there was a neighbor that uh, uh, was there and posted a Facebook post and then just said that. Uh, um, David and Almut Sweet, parents of Lara Sweet, there's a, uh, something tragic has happened and you need to call. And we were just boarding a plane in Thunder Bay. We had been visiting uh, my other uh, son um, in uh, Thunder Bay where his uh, in-laws have a cottage. And so we were just uh, coming back home and we were just boarding a plane. And, my, and Chris, my oldest son, uh, sent me a text message and said, you know, this was just posted Dad, you, you better call. And I, I said to him, listen, son, I'm just boarding a plane. I, I can't. I need you to step up and do this. And, and, he, and he did, of course, willingly. Uh, and uh, so I, I was expecting to get an answer uh, when we landed in Toronto. But uh, before the plane had taxied and taken off, my phone was still on. And, uh, and uh, Chris uh, advised me that uh, Lara had passed away. Uh, so... That was the longest flight of my life because my my wife was sitting beside me, and I didn't want to. Uh, you know, there's nothing you can do. Um, and I guess maybe one of the advantages of being a politician is you learn to manage uh, emotions and things. So uh, I didn't divulge that I had received that uh, text. I just we we just traveled to Toronto and uh, when we. You, you, when we, when you, we landed, I just said Lyra's gone, yeah. And it was, as you say, and this is probably the, well, I don't know if any part of this is the most difficult. It's also difficult, but this was, you talk about her choice. I mean, it, it again, for a parent, that has to just be, I, I don't know how you deal with it. How do you wrap your head around that? How do you deal with that when you, when you get that information? Yeah, uh, wow. I don't know if there was any. There's no template. Uh, yeah, we just, uh, you know, you just kind of, uh, at first you, you know, you just, uh, it's just a, a, a very, like it's just an, an empty feeling. Just, uh, and then you try to put the pieces together. How did this, you know, how did this happen? How, where did, we had just been with Lara the weekend before. It was uh, an extraordinary time. Uh, I'd picked her up at the train station. We had 
gone down to visit the gravesite of her uh, biological father. We uh, had had some great times at the house, and we had gone to uh, the Brassy uh, for karaoke night. And uh, uh, the next day was a civic holiday, and she stayed over. And uh, uh, you know, and it just looked like things were just uh, extraordinary. And so um, what uh, we discovered after is that, uh, and I think it's pretty reliable, the landlord that she was renting the room from had said that um, she did come home and she said it was the best family time she had in her life, but she had relapsed on drugs and she was afraid to tell me or tell her mom. And he tried to uh, uh, he tried to tell her, you know, listen, your, your parents love you. Uh, they'll, they'll understand and uh she couldn't shake that uh i guess that guilt uh so uh, from the from the note that she left i that's and what he said that's uh i think that was uh that was the case and that was her way of of dealing with it two two quick things before we let you go and i really appreciate you doing this um first of all you know one of the, one of the things about this that I realize, even as I'm talking to you right now, David, is that nobody knows, I don't think, what to say. I'm having a tough time knowing what to say to someone in your shoes, and you don't want to insult someone. You don't want to further upset them. When someone is going through this, what is the thing to say? What What is the proper thing to say to a parent or to a loved one of someone? Because I think we're okay at talking to someone whose loved one has just simply passed away from disease or an accident or something it's difficult but when it's at their own hand what do you say to someone what in your position what could someone have said to you that would have been helpful you know um i first off i think we all and when i say we all uh, uh brothers sister father mother all our relatives we all got that really quick there's and I, I, there's you know just people showing up just people a little note um just there were people who came to the visitation and funeral that uh they they couldn't they couldn't say anything and uh, they just uh, uh you know for them uh it was impossible they didn't just like you they didn't know what to say but but they were there and for us that was the that was the main thing it was like you know just just being there just showing an indication uh, there's nothing that's too uncomfortable or anything. It's just knowing that people care. And uh, we uh, took whatever it was, whether somebody was articulate or whether somebody, you know, many people, the the extraordinary thing, and we were, again, we've lived a public life, so we're, I guess we're a little bit equipped for it, but many people uh, just come and share their own pain because it's it's kind of like a catalyst where they need to just share their own pain. And even that was not tiring or it would, even that was, you know, uh, it would, it would, it felt blessed that people felt open enough to do that. And so that was even redemptive in, in and of itself. And David, you know what? I, unfortunately, I only have about 30 or 45 seconds. So unfortunately, this answer is going to have to be short. And this probably should have been the first thing I asked you, quite honestly. We, when we do this again some other time, I'll ask you this first so you have more time. But why are you doing this now? Why have you decided that you're going to come forward and talk about this and be open about this? Because not everybody wants to. Why are you doing that? No, we want people to know that uh, this the, that there's help out there. We want them not to feel stigmatized. We want them to be free to go seek help. We 
We want them to know that other people are wrestling with similar things that they're wrestling with. We want to make sure that Laura's legacy is as positive as it is, as it is continues to be that way, and that she continues to help people even now when she's in heaven versus when she's here. David Sweet, MP for Flamborough and Glanbrook, and uh, more importantly, father of Laura. Um, really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Thank you very much, Scott. That is, uh, my, what a, what a, what a story. Um, if you know someone, I guess, who is got someone who's dealing with this, or if you know someone who's in this situation, tell them to go listen. Find the podcast and direct them to go listen to what David just had to say, because he's been through it now. There's not many of us, thankfully, thankfully, there's not many of us who have, but we should probably listen pretty closely to those who have been through something like this. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Bob O'Neill from CHCH Sports. Um, Here's a question for you. Because we had the Lou Marsh Award given out as Canada's best athlete, went to Joey Votto, first baseman for the Cincinnati Reds. Terrific season, wonderful baseball player, second time winning it. Arguably, and I only say arguably because Larry Walker is in the mix, arguably the best position player ever by for a Canadian. I think Larry Walker gets some votes and gets some discussion. But, but here's the thing, even in the shadow of Joey Votto winning that award, I was thinking to myself, who is the most important person in Canadian sports right now? And I've come up with an answer. I'll ask you first. Who's your most important Canadian in sports right now? Ooh, the most important person. Not the best athlete, the most important person in Canadian sports. I, I You know what? And it's, it's I mean, it's, you know, I'm not trying to cheap out here, but I may have to say still Wayne Gretzky. That's not a bad answer. I'll tell you who I put down as the most important guy in Canadian sports, and he's a name that came in to this area, to Toronto, Southern Ontario, with a great flourish and a lot of people not liking him. He left rather quickly. But I would argue the most important person in Canadian sports right now is Tim Laiwicki. Well, I mean, I I don't know if important, but I think... Impactful? Well, I think right now... And this was a this was an immediate thought for me when I was at that game on Sunday on Saturday. This is totally unappreciated what he has done for sports in the GTA. Now, just for anyone who doesn't know who we're talking about, and some won't, because he again he was here and he was gone, and he was a not an athlete. He was a president or a whatever his CEO or whatever his, name, his title was, Tim Laiwiki came in, became the head of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. And in the two and a half, maybe three years he was in Toronto, he hired Brendan Shanahan to be president of the Maple Leafs. We know that that has worked out with the Shanna plan. He hired Masai Ujiri to be the general manager or president of the Toronto Raptors. That's worked out pretty well so far. And he brought in Michael Bradley and for the TFC and spent a lot of money and really put a lot of effort into building up that franchise. And on this weekend, as you say, Bubba, we saw how well that went. That's That guy is three for three in Southern Ontario. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because people remember, people have probably forgotten that his his sweet spot was Major League Soccer. Yes, yes. He was uh, responsible for putting together the LA Galaxy that won back-to-back championships. With Beckham? He was responsible for bringing in David Beckham, which, you know, whether you appreciate what he did for the league, and he certainly didn't play a lot, but he made the league, I think, 
mega in, in North America and was responsible for a lot of eyes, a national TV contract, and I thought made the league. I don't think anyone will argue with you that this is not the Bundesliga, this is not Syria, uh, this is not the Premiership, but it made it legit, and it made it, it, made it a league that people started to support uh, all across North America, including here in Toronto. And he, he sliced and diced and got the right people in the right place, places now some would say that he was a bit of an eye guy very aggressive in his moves remember what he did with the maple leafs he started taking down posters and of the old past and saying that you know what that that stuff was 30 years ago it's time to move forward so there was a lot of people that he upset um by taking down sayings and pictures in air canvas center and tried to you know forget about the past which a lot of people would say that the maple leafs have been hanging on to the past for too long so he was very aggressive in his maneuvers and eventually was kind of pushed out of the organization, but he was happily ready to go because apparently his wife didn't like being in Toronto. And, uh, but, like you said, he set the stage for, uh, I think, Toronto as a sports city from being one of the, the biggest jokes in North America to a city that, as you said, each team is legit right now. And the oddity of this, the irony of this, is that the work that he did, and this is why I think people kind of overlook him right now, the work that he did really didn't bear fruit until he was gone. It, it's all seemed, and the Raptors to a degree, but it's all seemed to come together as he's elsewhere now, so it's easy to forget that he was the guy that put this all together. And I think he's happy about that, because he's the kind of guy that, from what I read, he gets bored very quickly. He likes, he's one of those CEOs, and we see that with some of the top CEOs in the business world. They don't hang out too, at one place too long. They go in there, they fix stuff, they make a big name for themselves in many cases. And a big paycheck. And a big, you know, a, a mighty big <laughs> paycheck. And, and again, the more successful you are, the bigger that paycheck certainly goes, uh, depending on what you, what you, you, you deem as successful. And he, fixes stuff and and gets bored and then wants another project and and now we see right now that he's one of the point persons in getting the National Hockey League a possible franchise in Seattle and with again he left here and some of the stuff he did people had shaken their heads about what he did don't forget the other thing he did that really had a lot of people wondering what in the world he was thinking was he was the guy who gave Bon Jovi a banner in the Air Canada Center that's right um, but you, but you realize what that was all for, though. Yes. I think people have forgotten that he was uh, uh, trying to put together a group to legit to to get Bon Jovi on his side and get a National Football League. And it was apparently with that time when uh, Ralph Wilson had died, and that uh, he had long written into his um, his deed that when the bill, when he dies, that the bills are up for sale. He did not give it to a family member. So bringing John Bon Jovi and some other people, uh, influential business people with a lot of deep pockets, was to try and get the bills into Toronto. Yeah. And so when he's done all these things, and Seattle is now apparently in the mix for an NHL team, I, based when you look back at what he did here, I don't think you can bet against him getting the NHL into Seattle. I would bet on him right now. 
Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, I mean, I hate to say this, I think it's a slam dunk. And I, I see that with all due respect to they just got to find an owner. People in Houston, oh, that's going to be no problem. I, I, I mean, the ownership group is already formed, and it's a Brock Myler and and a couple of these other big wigs who have been kind of spicing around for a franchise for a long time. That I think the ownership group is. I mean, I think they call it the Bonderman Group. They're they're there. They're waiting. I mean, and now that the the city council in Seattle have passed that six hundred million dollars to renovate Key Arena. Uh, this is a slam dunk to me because I think Gary Bettman had long. He saw the success of the uh, the WHLs or WHAs uh, junior hockey Winterhawks in Portland and Seattle, and I think they knew that this was a slam dunk to put a team there, and it is going to be an arena that can have an NBA franchise. Though there are no plans right now for an NBA team to, or an expansion team to to move to Seattle. So just like Las Vegas, this is what makes Gary Bettman very happy. He's in a city first. Is the fact that Tim Laiwicki doesn't get much credit, at least not that I hear, is the fact that he seems to be kind of put to the side, the fact that he's not here anymore, or is it the fact that what we talked about a moment ago, that while he was here he ruffled some feathers and he wasn't seen as the most popular guy which what's the reason why he doesn't seem to get the credit that he probably should? I think it's exactly what you said. Set your second part of your answer there. I think that's exactly why. I think he, because he was, he was very aggressive. He did ruffle some feathers. Uh, uh, he had one way of thinking, um, and you know, it was a straight-ahead sort of. This is my way to do it. And again, when he left, it was kind of an unceremonious. You know, okay, yeah, well, you know, see ya. Plus, I will say this, and I don't want to get overly nationalistic. I think he was deemed the sort of ugly American, in a sense, that uh, who's this American guy coming in here and, you know, making ways and trying to change our, you know, our franchise. And especially with the Maple Leafs, that was certainly the most sensitive, for, you know, for some of the things that I talked about, because, I mean, that was, the, that was certainly the team that needed the most help. Um, compared to the Raptors, who are kind of on a way to success, but Masai kind of took it to another level, and Masai was highly respected in the NBA. But with the Maple Leafs, I think people were very, very sensitive with some of the changes he wanted mm-hmm. to make, and I think that's kind of why he kind of doesn't get that. Like I said, I think he's sort of forgotten. Like you said, he's forgotten, and I will say he's underappreciated because he got the ball rolling. Well, he he definitely, if you look back to his personality, the way he did things here, uh, and this is not going to sound like a compliment, and probably it isn't. He has a little bit of Mark Shapiro in him. Mm, interesting. You don't. There's a lot of people when they look at the Blue Jays that really don't like the fact that Mark Shapiro is the Cleveland guy, and, and I mean they want to win. If Mark Shapiro won, this is the tricky part. If Mike Sh- Mark Shapiro built a team that won, even then, this is the question. This is the part that ties into what I was asking. I'm not sure Mark Shapiro will get ever will get the credit. If he built a winner here, that he probably would deserve anybody who builds a winner here, because I don't think he's liked. I don't think he's seen as a likable guy, and so people will find someone else to give credit to. You know, and I don't know. I don't know if it's too much that he's not a likable guy, because I find him a, a very interesting guy. He's got tons of major league baseball experience. He's grown up in the system and learned a lot. But here's the problem: he followed a Canadian general manager that was born here, went to McMaster, and let's call a spade a spade. 
he hit the jackpot in his final two months of being on the job with the Blue Jays. And the the even today, I don't know if you heard the news. There was an interview with Mark Shapiro on a Toronto sports station where he kind of kicked Anthopolis a little bit today, saying that you know they're kind of in the position they are right now because of him and the trades that he made. Now the trades he made, as you well know, and I know, and everyone knows, put the Blue Jays into the postseason for the first time in nearly thirty years. So. To follow that guy, and Alex was a very likable guy, too. He was a friendly guy. And a Canadian. And a Canadian, and went to McMaster. And, and like I said, he, 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 he rolled the dice and put, got that team into the playoffs. So to follow that act, it's like being the heavyweight champion after Muhammad Ali. How can you possibly be as popular as the guy before? I'm just very concerned that you seem to have suggested that you listen occasionally to radio stations other than 900 CHML. <laughs> I thought that was our deal, that you were only going to listen to 900 CHML and break the dial off on all the other ones. I'm a, a man of all people. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you squirm for a minute on that one. That, on the radio station saying we're listening to Toronto sports radio stations, man! You got to yes. know how this media thing works better than that. There, nothing else exists. It well, is CHCH. It is CHML. It is the Spectator. The rest does not exist. Well, I mean, if I want any of my Hamilton information, I know exactly <laughs> where I'm going. Right. So every once in a while, just because I know we are CHCH is in, in Toronto, I do have to venture down the dial to another uh, to a, a couple of other stations just to peek in and make sure I'm educated. It is. Um, it is always good. To educate the Bubba. Although you're usually the one educating us. I really listen, I appreciate the time today. We're sorry we were so short, but uh, loved having you on. Thanks for doing this. Always a pleasure there, Scott. Uh, Bubba O'Neill. Look, go look up, if you can't remember what Tim Laiwiki was about, go look it up because it's a it's an interesting story. Not a guy that everybody loved. To the contrary, there were a lot of people who couldn't wait for him to get out of town. But in his wake, a few years later, you cannot... In good conscience, if you're going to be honest, you can't say that guy did not get Toronto sports teams, Southern Ontario sports teams, Canadian sports teams pointed in the right direction. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.